Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. The play of all time is called Doubt. Now, it debuted on Broadway in 2005, and it follows a priest and two nuns as they struggle with doubt and faith in a Catholic school in the Bronx in the 60s. Now, this play made me think about faith and doubt like nothing else ever has. And its central question was this, can you ever really be certain about anything? Now, you may have heard of the movie by the same name. It was very good, but there was something very different about the play because there were only three actors in the entire play. The audience was part of every scene. So as the play opened, I was in the congregation as Father Flynn gave his introductory sermon, and it's a sermon that has stayed with me ever since. He told the story of a young sailor whose ship sinks and his crew dies, leaving him alone at sea. After he fashions a boat and sets his course by the stars, a storm rolls in, and the sailor is unable to see the stars for the next 20 days and begins to doubt his navigation. As he starts to hallucinate, he wonders if he could trust the sure course that he set or if he would give in to his doubt. This really resonated with me because I have so often wrestled with doubt. Maybe you have too. The letters that we're studying this semester, the letters of John, were written for Christians struggling with doubt. John wants to convince them, and he wants to convince us, that there is, in fact, something to be certain about. Just like the parable of the man at sea, John wants us to know that you can set your course on something truer and brighter than the stars, on the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the light of the world. So as we do every semester as we introduce our study, we're going to answer three big questions about the books that we're studying. Where do they fit into the big story of God? Where do they fit into their specific historical context? And then finally, how are we going to study them together? So let's start this morning with where do the letters of John fit into the big story of God? Now, for those of you who are new to this group, we have been on a seven-year journey through this big story of God. We started in Genesis seven fall semesters ago, and we have studied an Old Testament book or a series of books every fall since, marching our way through this chronological story about God and his people, Israel. That very first spring, we studied the Gospel of John, and then every spring since then, we've studied a New Testament book or a series of books that pulls a thread from that Old Testament theme that we studied in the fall to its fulfillment in Jesus. So many of you in the room were here last fall when we studied the Old Testament prophets. They were the final spirit-inspired words of God before 400 years of silence between the Old and New Testaments. They were the words, the oracles, the visions, the poems, the living sermons 
that were given to Israel and to Judah as they experienced God's judgment and exile in Assyria and Babylon. These prophets were agents of light in Israel's darkness, pointing them to the Messiah who was to come. So let's think about what happened next. After 400 years of silence, the Messiah, in fact, came. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that marked the beginning of our A.D. calendar. Jesus lived, he died, he rose, and he ascended roughly between 0 and 33 A.D., long before any New Testament books were actually written about him. The first New Testament letters that were written were written between 40 and 50 A.D., after the church had already been born and was thriving. The first gospel about Jesus' life, the Gospel of Mark, was written between 50 and 60 A.D. Then the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and Acts, along with most of the other letters to the churches in your New Testament, were written sometime between 60 and 70 A.D. And then you have the Gospel of John, the last of the four Gospels written, really late, written sometime between 70 and 85 A.D. Think of how long that was after Jesus had lived and died and was resurrected and ascended. But But the letters we are studying are the only other letters that were written after John's gospel. First, second, and third John, and the letters and visions of the book of Revelation. So this semester, we are studying the final spirit-inspired words of our New Testament before the thousands of years of silence that we remain in as we wait for Christ's return. Just like Isaiah and Ezekiel, John saw great visions of Christ in his exile. And he's going to urge us to cling to Jesus in the ever-changing world that we live in. All right, well, our next question is where do these books fit into their historical context? And to do that, we always answer these same five questions of every text. Who wrote these books? To whom? When were they written? In what style were they written, and what are their major themes? I hope this isn't boring to you, because I I want this to inform how you study the letters of John this semester. So let's dive into the first question, who wrote these books? We've already started to answer this one. It was John the Apostle. I hope you learned a little about him in your discussion time this morning. Now you have this list in your notes that I'm about to go through with all of the verse references, for each point. So if you want to look them up later, I highly encourage you to do that. But we're going to kind of go quickly through John's life. We're going to start with his early life. First, we know that he was one of the very first disciples called. He and his brother left their fishing nets behind with haste to follow Jesus. He was later named by Jesus as one of 12 specially chosen apostles. And that's going to be really important to our study because he was one who was given special authority to teach and preach by Jesus himself. Well, piecing a lot of verses together from all four Gospels, we know that John was the son of Zebedee and Salome, and he was the brother of James. He and his brother were given a nickname, I hope you talked about this, Sons of Thunder. 
Jesus gave them this name, and perhaps it described their personality, or maybe it described their mother's personality. Because remember, she was the one who went to Jesus and said, hey, I want these boys to sit at your right and at your left when you come into your kingdom. Now their mother, Salome, this might be news to you. She was likely Mary's sister. So that would make John Jesus' first cousin. So I encourage you to look up all those, those verses that I gave you there about that. We know that John was definitely part of Jesus' inner circle. He was one of three trusted confidants, along with Peter and his brother James. Together, these three witnessed special healings by Jesus. They had private conversations with him. They witnessed Jesus' transfiguration. And they went with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus certainly prepared John very uniquely to be a leader in the early church. Well, in his gospel, John claims to be the one whom Jesus loved. So perhaps he really was Jesus' closest friend. We know that Jesus asked John to care for his mother Mary when he was dying on the cross. Well, now let's consider his later life. I hope you, some of you were able to discuss this event at your tables this morning. But only John records this really interesting scene that happened after Jesus' resurrection in John chapter 21, verses 18 to 23. On a beach, sharing breakfast with his disciples, Jesus told Peter that he would die as a martyr for his faith. It was implied, on the other hand, that John would outlive him. This really bothered Peter, but I wonder which of the two would have been harder to endure. History tells us that John did live to be an old man, while his brother James was the first of all of the other apostles to be martyred for his faith. John became an elder at the church in Ephesus, where he located just before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. He wrote the last gospel account, the Gospel of John, and then the three main letters that we're studying this semester, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, from Ephesus as the last living apostle. So think about that. He was one of the last eyewitnesses who had actually seen with his eyes and heard with his ears and experienced firsthand the miraculous works of the Messiah in the flesh. And he's going to start the gospel of 1st John, or the, the letter of 1st John with that very truth this week in your homework. Well, around 95 AD, during a time of great persecution under Rome, John was exiled to an island called Patmos. And the word says he was exiled because he was preaching the word of God and sharing testimonies about Jesus. So kind of an interesting retirement plan, huh? In his later life, he was sent to a prison on an island. But when he was there, he saw supernatural visions from the Lord, and he wrote those down in the book of Revelation. Well, our next question is, to whom were these books written? Well, I have a map up here from, the, from Revelation, but it's interesting because it applies to the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. The letter of 1st John was probably intended to be read to John's church in Ephesus, so that's number one up there on the map and then to be circulated to the other churches in this general uh, region of Asia. 
what is now modern-day Turkey. Second John was written to an unnamed congregation, but it was probably one in this general region. It could have been one of the ones that are addressed in Revelation. Third John is written to a person named Gaius, but it was expected to be shared with his church. Now, the letters in Revelation were written by John from this little island you see with the little black dot on the map. That's the island where he was exiled, Patmos. And they were written to seven specific churches that you see listed up here. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We're going to talk about them a lot later in the semester. All right, next question, when were these books written? We kind of already addressed this, so very quickly. John wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John shortly after his gospel account, sometime between 85 and 90 AD. And then he wrote Revelation very, very close to those, to those letters around 95 AD. Okay, and what style were they written? Well, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are known as epistles or letters, but they weren't just letters that you would receive in a mailbox. They would be hand-delivered to a church and circulated to all the surrounding church churches and read aloud to congregations of Christians. So imagine that. They didn't have it like we do to read. They listened to it being read aloud. 1st John reads kind of like a sermon. It was a sermon, and there's a lot of repetition in it because it was read aloud. Second and third John are very short. They're short admonitions. John starts the book of Revelation with these very specific and personal letters to Ephesus and the surrounding churches before he describes all of the, the visions that you might be thinking about when you think about that book. Well, what are the major themes of this book? In the late first century AD, a lot of false teachings were beginning to circulate among Christian churches. John's letter, John especially as the last living eyewitness, the last living apostle, his letters direct this false teaching head on. And he's going to call believers back to three basic principles of the Christian life. The first one is truth or right belief. This could be thought of as the doctrinal mark. And you might hear that word and go, oh my goodness, Amy, doctrine? I don't want to study doctrine. That sounds complicated. That sounds hard. The irony here is that John is going to tell us what to believe, but it's very simple. It's what to believe about Jesus, who he was, and what he did. So John is going to repeat simple truths about Jesus over and over and over again in his letters. The next thing he's going to call us to is obedience or right behavior, the ethical mark. John reminds his audience that instead of obeying all of these rules that have been made by men and are being added by men, we are to follow the simple truths that Jesus taught as we are reminded and instructed by the Holy Spirit. And then finally, John calls his audience to worship, to write love, the moral mark. John says that what motivates the Christian to believe and to act rightly is wholehearted love and devotion to God and his people. Well, the things that John teaches are very simple, but they are not easy. 
His letters are in direct contrast to a very complicated group of teachings that were prevalent at this time in the, in the late first century and the early second century AD. And this teaching was called Gnosticism. You may have heard of this before. I don't want that to scare you off. I want us to try to understand it very simply this morning. So for our purposes, I've tried to simplify these teachings into three key concepts that I think we are still wrestling with today. I hope they resonate with you today. What John is going to try to convince us in his letters is that Jesus' life and his teachings were drastically different. Now you have this, this chart. You don't have to write all this down in your notes. All right, the first concept is salvation. Gnosticism said that salvation is found when you discover a secret inner knowledge, and only you get to know it. And this knowledge is going to enable you to overcome the material world, and it completely eliminates the need for faith. You won't need faith because you will know. You will have a secret knowledge. I think people believe some similar things today, don't you? I call this modern Gnosticism. Modern Gnosticism says, God is within me, so I am enough. Faith is for people who don't know any better. God just wants me to be the best me that I can be. Now, we hear this from Christians, even. But Jesus says to all of us something very simple. He says, come to me. I am the only way to the Father. Well, the next concept I want us to think about is the nature of Christ. Gnostics believed in docetism. Now, that's a very big word. It's a fancy word for a belief that Jesus was fully God, but he was not fully man. Gnostics claimed that Jesus didn't have a real human body, so he couldn't have really suffered, and he could not physically die. Now, I want you to remember that because John is going to address that a lot in his letters. Modern thought about Jesus, held by many Jews and atheists and agnostics, is just the opposite of that. They believe Jesus was a good man, but not really God. But when Jesus was asked who he was, he evoked God's name, and he said, I am. And if you remember from John, in John's gospel, he tells us seven I am statements that Jesus made. And Jesus claimed, very importantly, to be fully man and fully God, both the Savior of the world and Lord over all. Well, the final concept I want us to think about is a concept called dualism. And this just describes what is good and what is evil. Gnostics taught that the material world and the human body were evil. So goodness was found in transcending the body into this spiritual realm. I think we definitely see this concept at play in our world today. Modern Gnosticism says that your physical body is bad and doesn't reveal your true identity. You, in fact, get to decide what is good. Examples of this are how we perceive gender and sexuality today. But Jesus said something radically different. He said that only God is good, and all mankind has been corrupted by sin or evil from within. But the good news, the great news of the gospel is that we have been bought with a price with Jesus' own blood. 
So we are able to glorify God with our physical bodies. Now, there's a lot more to be said about Gnosticism, but I think these concepts will really help us understand the letters of John. And so I want to admonish you when you get, <clears throat> when you get frustrated with why is John repeating himself so many times. I want you to try to think back to one of these three concepts and think, what is he trying to address in his letters? How is he trying to counter this false teaching? I think that'll serve you well. Okay, finally, we're going to think about our method this semester. How will we study these books? You may have already talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to go through it. So grab your book out. We have a wonderful book, study guide, that's going to take us through the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I hope everybody has a copy, Abide, by Jen Wilkin. Now, you also have a resource guide. Everybody should have gotten that at your table during your discussion time. In the resource guide, you have three additional weeks of homework for the letters of Revelation. So you may want to, to get a binder or a folder to put those in. I don't want you to lose those. Those are going to be very important when we get to those weeks. All right, pages seven and eight in your book, if you want to, if you want to turn there, you don't have to, but... Jen Wilkin details the process that we are going to use to study these books there, and she uses a really clever acronym to help us remember, CIA. So I think we can all remember that, right? Comprehension, interpretation, and application. So I want to go through those very quickly this morning before we close. Our first task is going to be to comprehend what the text actually says. Now, this means that we are going to read the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John a lot. In fact, she's going to ask you to read those in their entirety every, every week as your first day of homework. And you might think, three books? I have to read three books? Well, I timed it, and it takes about 10 minutes to read all three books, so you can do this. And it's really helpful and important to read them in their entirety and to see how John is saying many of the same things over and over again. Now, another way to accomplish this task is to listen to the books be read to you. That's one of my favorite things, and it actually helps us to identify with the audience because that's how they heard these letters read to them. And so I have my phone read it to me as I'm driving to work or when I'm doing dishes, which I hate to do, or walking my dog. I have, I have my phone reading the text to me. If you do nothing else this semester... And it's okay if you don't get to anything else, but it's not okay to not read the text. I want you to read the text of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the letters that we're going to study in Revelation. It's just three chapters of Revelation. I want you to read those over and over again this semester. Then this week, we're going to be starting in week two of our homework, starting on page 17. So you can flip there so you can see how this is set up. You'll notice that each week is divided into five days, and on day one, you're going to be reading and marking the text. I don't want you to worry about marking up your Bible. There's a, there's a copy of the full text of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John on page 176, and she's going to ask you to go there and to mark some things with different colors and different symbols. I don't want this to freak you out. If that is helpful to you, then I want you to do it, because it can be an incredibly useful tool to see repetition in the text. But if you find that it's burdensome to you and it's not helping you, then don't worry about it. No one is going to look at your markings. You're not going to get any kind of grade. This is for your benefit. 
Okay, the next thing the homework is going to have us do is to interpret what we have just read. An interpretation asks, what does the text mean? What did it mean to the original audience, and what does it mean for us today? So your homework book is going to ask you to do lots of different things. Some days you're going to look up other texts of Scripture in the Bible that inform the concepts that are being addressed. Some days she'll ask you to paraphrase verses or paragraphs in your own words based on dictionary definitions you have looked up. And you might think, I don't know if I can do that. It's an incredibly helpful way to interpret the text. You look up a word, what it means, and then you try to put it into your own words. She's going to ask you to do that quite a lot. I don't want you guys to, to worry. If, you, if, this, if these things are hard to you, don't get stressed out. If you struggle with a question and you can't get an answer, just skip it. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Don't worry about getting everything right or wrong. God is going to be speaking to you in his word. And so do what you can. Do the best that you can. And when we come together, we'll talk about it. Well, the final thing we're going to do is apply what we've learned. And that asks, how does the, che- the, how does the text change me? How does it change us together? So every day you'll notice in your homework that you have a highlighted question, an apply question. And this is going to help you think personally first. And then when you come together in your discussion, you're always going to discuss those highlighted apply questions. So you can, you can discuss how to apply them together. At the end of every week's homework, you have a wrap-up question. And I really like this. It asks you what aspect of God's character was shown to you more clearly in that week's study. So you know that I love this, but in, the, in her book, she has a list of the attributes of God on pages 186 and 187. And that's a place that you can go to answer that wrap-up question. What attribute of God did you see as you studied that week? And then you'll have this prompt every week at the end of your homework, and I love it. Knowing that God is blank shows me that I am blank. And then what is one step that I can take that week to better live in light of that truth? Now, this is a great way to approach any text of scripture that you study, asking these basic questions. So this is a discipline that I'm excited for you to learn this semester. Now, as a side note, I want you to be aware that you have access to all of the teaching videos by Jen Wilkin that accompany this book. You'll see on the back cover of your book how to log on to lifeway.com, and you can gain access to these digital videos. Now, Jen's teachings average about 45 to 50 minutes, and they go verse by verse through the text. They are excellent, but we are not going to be discussing her lectures. This is optional for you. I want you to know that that's there and available for you, but we're not going to be discussing those. We're going to be adding additional teaching like I'm doing today at the end of our time together, but I wanted you to be aware that it's there for you. Then we're going to come back after we do week two of our homework this week, we're going to come back and we're going to enter into a group discussion. And this is so important that we discuss first because I want you discussing what God has taught you in the Word rather than what you hear me or any other teacher say from the stage. So you can look on page 30. You'll see the discussion guide for next week. And it's just going to refer you back to questions from your homework. But you can look over it before you come. That's exactly how we're going to go through the discussion in your discussion groups. 
We do this in intergenerational groups of women, and I love that because I believe that we get a more holistic understanding of the text when we interpret and apply it with people who are at different stages of life than us. It really helps us to gain great insight into God's word. And then finally, you're going to hear a lecture like mine today from different women in our body, and we also differ in age and stage of life. And this is going to help us see how all of us are wrestling with and applying the same word. And God uses that, I believe, to knit our hearts closer and closer together as sisters and as family. So I'm really excited. I hope you are too for what God has to teach us this semester. Well, we started this morning with the question introduced by the play Doubt. Can you ever really be certain about anything? John says, yes. He uses the phrase, you know or we know, 34 times in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But I want us to focus on one of my favorite statements as we close today. It's found in chapter 4, verse 13. We know that we abide in God and he in us because he has given us his spirit. I want you to know that we are safe in him. His spirit is at work in us and, in, and among us all together to guide us into all truth. So I want you to bring all of your questions. I want you to bring all of your doubt. Don't be afraid to do that. God is going to keep us safe together. And I, I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to grant us the kind of certainty that only he can reveal. So let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the certainty that we have in Christ, for the spirit that abides in us. And we, we in you through the Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we are just asking you to help us as we enter into a, maybe, some, maybe for some, a scary season of study. I just pray, God, that you give us wisdom, that you give us the motivation, the courage to open up your word and to expect to hear from you. Holy Spirit, we look forward to what you will teach us, how you will convict us, how you will train us. And we are just um, thrilled to be your children. Thank you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, week two this week, week two in your homework.